Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 397. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to talk about our flagship event, FinTech Nexus USA, happening in New York City on May 10th and 11th. The world of finance continues to change at a rapid pace, but we will be separating the wheat from the chaff, covering only the most important topics for you over two action-packed days. More than 10,000 one-on-one meetings will take place, and the biggest names in fintech will be on our keynote stage. You know you need to be there, so go ahead and register at fintechnexus.com and use the discount code PODCAST for 15% off. Today's episode was recorded at the Merge Conference in London on October 17th and 18th, uh, where I interviewed Romeus Ram. He is the CEO of Finality. The title of our session is uh, Increasing the Velocity of Money with Real-Time Settlement. And that's basically what Finality has done. They're owned by a consortium of banks. These banks have come together to create a real-time settlement mechanism for bank-to-bank transfers. They are going underway now with the Bank of England and super interesting technology. This is something that uh, potentially could be rolled out globally. So very much think everyone here should have a listen because I think it's groundbreaking work they're doing. Hope you enjoy the show. Wonderful. We're talking about the velocity of money with the CEO of Finality. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Of course. Why don't you give a quick intro and a little bit about what Finality does? Yeah, so just a little bit about me. I'm the CEO of a company called Finality International. We've been in existence since um, 2019. It's owned by a consortium of banks and other financial market infrastructure, many of which you'll have, um, you'll have heard of. My background is actually banking. I came from a traditional banking world. I spent 22 years at Deutsche Bank. I worked in many areas of foreign exchange. I basically ran the electronic trading business in the early 2000s. And in the late of uh, 2010s, I was running different parts of product management for transaction banking. So all the payments bits, uh, trade finance, the custody and securities businesses, and trust and agency. Okay, so maybe you can talk a little bit about, in relatively layman's terms, what it is that you are building. Yeah. So what Finality is building is basically a private sector answer to central bank digital currency. So effectively, we are creating a settlement asset that has all of the same credit quality as central bank money, has uh, something called settlement finality, which hence our name, which basically means that when you pay someone, your contractual obligations are discharged. So effectively, we are creating something very close to central bank uh, digital currency. We're doing it by effectively opening up accounts at the various central banks we're working with in the UK, the US and Europe for the time being. We have Japan and Canada on the sort of further um, horizon. We'll open up a special type of account with them. Funds will be deposited in those accounts and they will be the funds that essentially back the settlement that happens on our um, blockchain. Okay, so then let's just dig into like, what's a use case? Can you give us like a a practical use case? Is this just for really, you know, large investors? What are we talking about? Yeah, so as you might have guessed from the types of investors we have, the genesis of this was really from large banks wanting to make their 
kind of capital markets businesses and so on much more efficient than they currently are. So all of these banks were really looking for a way to um, rationalize their operations, etc. The company formed in 2019, but I started doing the research on it back in 2017. And as we looked more into the overall project, we realized that having a settlement asset on chain would actually enable the banks to release a lot of capital from their balance sheet. So faster payments overall and the removal of intermediaries would mean that you could lower the buffers on your balance sheets and that would be really beneficial for the banks. So to answer part of your question, it's all aimed dominantly at wholesale. The types of use cases that we're going for are really about something versus payments. So in the traditional finance space, we call security settlement where the security is delivered at the same time as the money, um, DVP. And so one of our main use cases is DVP, and that means that you eliminate the risk between the security getting delivered and the money getting delivered. In the foreign exchange market, it's called PVP, payment versus payment, for the same reason. You can imagine it like, um, you know, in those old-style kind of spy movies when you walk the prisoners across the bridge, everyone's kind <laughs> of um, making sure that they get their side of it. And then obviously, in order to do any of that, we have to do straight payments, but we don't think the market for that there's one use case in particular where there is actually quite a significant uh, reason to do it. But in general, payments work reasonably well in wholesale markets, so there's not a big use case for that. The reason the banks want all of this is because currently to do PVP and DVP, you need multiple other entities involved in the transaction, which basically mean that you end up splitting your liquidity and having a whole bunch of operational checks that you need to carry out to make sure that you know, the funds and the timing are all um, correct. If you get rid of all of that, um, remove the need for these intermediaries using you know, DLT-type solution, you can basically take all of that cost away. And if you can make it all instant, you start to reduce um, the amount of liquidity that you actually need to make all of the payments. Aren't the banks, their entire system is built on this T plus 2 kind of, it's not instant, all of the systems are, are designed this way. I mean, how do you move from T plus 2 to T plus 0? There's sort of two questions there. Why are we 2 plus 2? How hard is it to move to T0? And then why do they want to do it? Mm -hmm. So the reason we're in that place is actually, it's all to do with you know, how computers evolved, right? So back in the like, 80s, when um, the banks really started to put a technology in to be able to settle their transactions, it was basically mainframes and you needed batch processes. And so it necessitated the banks to be able to net all of their transactions together so that the next day when the computers had run over and kind of netted out all the accounts out, they could settle in one go. So really it was computer science that drove them down the path of T plus something. As computer science has improved, obviously the possibility of going to instant has increased and you don't necessarily need blockchain to do instant um, today. There's obviously instant payment systems that already exist. But as you rightly say, most of the systems, the core systems in the banks are still set up for T plus something. The banks don't want to do that because if they continue to have T plus two, there's two days where the settlement of whatever transaction it is are outstanding. And so they need to have um, some sort of balance sheet buffers uh, in order to compensate for the risk across those two days. And so, you know, there's interest charge and all, kind of all the rest of it. So they want it to come down, but they need the whole market to change at the same time. They need a catalyst for that to happen. And so they see what we're doing and the entire kind of DLT or blockchain thing as a catalyst for driving the market towards much faster settlement across all of the different assets um, in general. The last part of what you're saying is, how are they going to do it? It's definitely not going to be an easy, easy thing. I think that's, this is actually the hardest part of what we're attempting will be getting the banks to uh, gradually migrate all of their systems and processes to something that's much more um, real-time. 
my suspicion is they'll do it sort of piece by piece. So they'll bite off a piece of one business and try that out and see how it works. You know, kind of like everything else. You can't do it all in one big bang. They'll do it piece by piece over time. I think that time could be, you know, several years as they kind of evolve it. Right. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the state of play. I mean, I think you said you, you ran a pilot earlier this year. Like, tell us a little bit about that and, and how the progression has gone. Because I imagine this is, you're not quite ready yet to be processing billion dollar transactions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the hardest things that we've had to do is um, persuade the authorities, so basically the central banks, that this is all a thing that actually is going to add value to the overall market. So the last three years, we've been spending lots of time with the various central banks in order to progress our account applications, etc. And um, I guess the most I can say is, in my opinion, it's all definitely going to happen. And now it's a kind of a question of time of when that does happen. We've run proof of concepts because one thing is, will the regulators ever accept it? I think tick it is going to be accepted. The next question is, okay, well, if you've done all of that stuff, the people who are going to pay for it want use cases, etc., in order to sh- make the business cases within their own banks. So because of the way banks are organized, they're not organized around their whole balance sheet. They're organized into separate businesses. So each business needs to have a reason why it wants to make this happen. And so we've been running use cases. The one you're particularly referring to is um, around um, intraday FX swaps to show how the banks could use our platform to, to make their lives much better. Right. Okay. So I'd like to just spend a moment to dig into the weeds here and just... And I know you're not like a super technical guy, but which is good because you can then explain it to the rest of us. But I mean, I think you're using an instance of the Ethereum blockchain, is that correct? And then how are you settling? Just maybe take us through the different stages of that, of a transaction. So it's not just a technology question, actually. It's kind of a law question as well. So let me okay. take you through um, a bit of how that works. So like I said, we're going to open up this account at the central bank. It's going to be, in the UK, referred to it as an omnibus account. In the US, it's called a joint account. But basically, there are multiple owners of the funds inside of that account. We are the operator of the account. So we're, you know, imagine if you and your husband or you and your wife opened up a joint account. Like, whose money is it? It's kind of both of your money, right? So this, this account has both of their money. So now what they do is create, or we for them, create a rule book that specifies the rules under which that money is apportioned, right? And so then depending on what the state of play of the rule book is, they have different amounts of money in it. And we use the blockchain basically as the accounting record of what's in that account. So bank A might have, you know, I don't know, 50 pounds in there and bank B might have 70 pounds. If that's recorded on the blockchain, the rule book says that record is the amount that they own respectively. But the funds are actually still sitting in the central bank account. And for this reason, because they collectively own the money in the central bank account, there's no bankruptcy issue kind of with us, you know, if we went bankrupt, there's still their money and that the record on the blockchain is still the record of what they own and so on. Okay, okay. So then, I mean, how many banks do you got? It was like 13 or something, isn't there? There's 15 banks and uh, two infrastructures and an ETF sponsor. Okay, so you've got banks already that are part of your consortium. You need a buyer and a seller, right? You need to be able to have two parties on the transaction. Are you just looking at your existing 15 banks to kind of roll this out? I mean, what about other banks that are, that are interested in coming? So, I mean, the, lo- the long-term goal is to have other banks, you know, participate, in fact, all banks be able to participate in the system, but you kind of got to start somewhere. And so kind of the most user-friendly banks are our existing investors. And so 
they are going through all the teething problems that you would have with a new system and helping us discover you know, all of the issues around onboarding and so on. So you know, all 15 of our banks are in various stages of um, onboarding to our platform. Right, right, okay. I heard someone talk about your platform the other day and say well, it's really like a synthetic CBDC. It seems like if what you're doing is successful, does that just obviate the need for like a retail CBDC? So we're definitely not retail. I know so, you're not yeah, retail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes, retail what... would have to be whatever it is. But uh, in the wholesale space, I guess my answer would be we'd like to be the only one, but there's no reason why there couldn't be other competitors. I would say synthetic CBDC could be a way of saying it. The way I say it is a more private sector answer to CBDC. And if you look at, you know, like the US or Europe, they actually have payment systems where they have a public sector answer to central bank money. So in Europe, it's um, Target. But they also have a private sector answer to it, which is EBA clearing. And those two things coexist pretty nicely. There's a handful of, or actually more than a handful, but many banks that basically settle on EBA clearing. But those banks also settle on target when the need is correct for them. The reasons are, you know, it might be convenience or features or whatever. The same thing in the US. The US has something called Fedwire, which is run by um, the New York Fed. But there's also a system in the US called CHIPS, which is a private sector system run by a company called TCH, the clearinghouse, which is basically owned by a consortium of banks. So again, it has the same, the same model where there's a private sector answer and the public sector answer that are both doing pretty much the same thing. And they've been coexisting for many years. So the European answer has been you know, basically since the late 90s, I think, whenever the uh, ECB came online. And the US answer has been around since the 70s. I believe TCH came around in the 70s. Right. And we're still working yeah. on a new, a new version of that. So then let's talk about, I mean, this is, this is a problem that exists in pretty much every country, right? I mean, you're, you're here in the UK, you're working um, with the Bank of England and the British banks. Are you talking to Europe? Are you talking to the US, Japan? Where, well, like, where are you at with those conversations? So, so the main three that we're talking to pretty often is our um, UK, US and Europe. Current funding should take us to Japan and, you know, the business plan is basically Japan and Canada as well. So we have Canadian and uh, Japanese banks in our shareholder group. Assuming all of that is successful, ultimately we'd like to roll it out to other jurisdictions that we're interested in. We have kind of a franchise model in mind that would allow it to be rolled out to other jurisdictions or regions. And maybe just touch on how are you actually making money? Is this like a, a SaaS type product? Is there a transaction fee? What, what is the business model for Finality? Yeah, so predominantly it's a SaaS type product, like you pay some, you know, whatever, a few hundred grand, and then you can do as many payments as you like. We are going to charge per transaction, though, for things that you can't do today. So I was referring to um, FX, so payment versus payment. Right now you can do it at T plus two, which is what you were talking about earlier. So we wouldn't charge you for that. But if you want to do instant payment versus payment, then we would charge you for that. And the reason that we would do it that way is because actually that's when you start to get all the balance sheet savings. So actually we're trying to line ourselves up with the incentive that, you know, the banks have with our incentives. So the more they use it for the thing that's going to really give them the savings, then we'll also benefit from that. Right, right. Okay. Okay. So then we're talking about the velocity of money here and real-time payments. Do you have any, any sense of how much can be unlocked here with, with a new system like the one you're doing? Is this, like, what will it mean to have faster velocity of money? What will it mean to not have to have all this you know, it's not just, it's cost and time on the balance sheet. Have you had... Well, we've, we've looked at the liquidity that? savings and we think, you know, if every bank did it and they all optimised, that it could be of the order of like 15, 16 billion per annum in, in the market. 
that's excluding all the operational savings. But of course, we're not going to get to a situation where everyone does it perfectly. Right. <laughs> and also, that's a little bit of an est estimate. But that doesn't take account of you know kind of all the stuff that might be composed on top of it. So I think there are a lot of um, really interesting creations in the DeFi space that could actually come to the wholesale market via a mechanism like ours that would actually unlock even more value for the participants. And oh, you know, say more. What's, what are the DeFi space? What are some of the things that... Yeah, so, so one thing I was thinking about is um, you want to buy a security, but you don't have the money for it, even if you're a bank. So you can go out and you have to go out and borrow or right. whatever. You've got to do a, you know, some sort of repo. But actually you could do, you know, I guess it's called flash loans in the DeFi space, but you could do something It actually exists in the current market. You can do auto collateralization where you take the securities you're about to buy, put them into a pledge, you know, basically a smart contract, get the funding for that, pay for it and like the whole thing right. you know, kind of so that, that's kind of one example but that i'm sure you know there's many other examples that are coming about that you know i can't imagine right now that will transform the industry right. well we have a few questions coming in here like how do you scale fiat payouts is the onus of liquidity and float management on the financial institution yeah yeah, yeah. so so there's two ways to that's a great question actually that relates really to the to the title of the, yep. the presentation so there's two ways that this can go one way is kind of the way that it goes right now, which is you have some sort of netting window. So right now, for, for some of the payment systems out there, it's over a couple of days. You get all the transactions together. People figure out what the net is, and then they only make that um, single payment. You can obviously speed that up and reduce the netting cycles to like hour by hour or something like that. You probably wouldn't go to minute by minute because there wouldn't be enough payments happening in any, any given minute to get meaningful netting. So that's kind of a traditional way of doing it. My background, actually, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, was from um, electronic trading. And so I saw capital markets basically transform itself from a very manual process where people traded bigger sizes over time to trading much more frequently, much smaller sizes. So I came from the world of FX. You know, the average transaction size in like 1998 was about $2 million. And by the time I left FX in like 2004, we were down at like $50,000. But of course, the volumes had quadrupled or maybe even got up by a factor of six at that point. They went up to like a factor of eight or nine by 2008. Uh, and so you're getting much more volume, just like much smaller size um, going through much more frequently. The same things that actually also happened in the equity markets. So I have a view that actually, if you could settle to ma match what's happening on the trade side, you would actually speed up the velocity of money through the system and you would use less liquidity. So basically that $50,000 would just like recycle through all the banks much faster. You know, we've done some modeling on it and actually it kind of works. It basically is just as good but less risky than the current model. The participants are going to do whatever works for them from a financial perspective. But I suspect the settlement side, given all of this new technology, will start to catch up to the trade side and will match that functionality. How significant are the savings compared to SEPA and CHAPS, etc.? The transactions limited to the banks' countries where you have established partnerships. So SEPA is like an ACH and CHAPS is, um, you know, it's basically the RTGS for the UK. I don't think there's that much savings. I mean, for straight payments, it's essentially free. We'll charge, you know, whatever, a few hundred grand a year for you to do it. So if you're going to do the same thing as you're doing in CHAPS, it'll be much cheaper. And you can do whatever volume you want. The transactions are... It will be limited to banks, so there's a specific reason for this. Our vision, actually, was much wider than banks when we first started out. We wanted to go to, you know, through a buy side and eventually to corporates. The issue with that, at least in the short to medium term, is monetary policy. So the central banks have 
understandably nervous about allowing something that's very close to central bank money to be not in the hands of banks because they f- they would find it difficult to control money supply via you know interest rates and so on. They don't regulate corporates or um, asset managers or hedge funds, etc. So for that reason, it's limited to deposit-taking institutions. Even with that, if we can expand out the number of deposit-taking institutions on our platform across the globe, you'll still get a lot of the benefits that I'm talking about. Uh, so it's li- it is limited to banks. Countries, it's just a question of which country we can go to fast enough to get it all set up and then we'll make it work. Right. Follow-up to the float management and liquidity question. Is finality essentially creating a closed-loop ecosystem to optimise the swaps? Are there any plans for interoperability? So I described at the beginning how funds go into this omnibus account and then you do whatever you've got to do. But the funds can be taken out of the omnibus account by the participants. So there's no liquidity trap. Your liquidity isn't trapped at all in our system. If you want to go and take it somewhere else, as long as as you've actually got the liquidity, you can take it out and do whatever you want. So I wouldn't say that it's um, closed loop at all. The second thing I'd say is there's lots of different words around uh, meanings of interoperability. When I use the word interoperability, what I mean is, can we link up to other settlement systems and provide PVP and DVP, this kind of um, atomic settlement feature? And the answer is yes, but I'm not 100% sure that's what the question's asking for. So, mm-hmm. You have an instance of the Ethereum blockchain, right? I mean, and there scaling issues there. I mean, imagine you wouldn't have chosen it if you felt it wouldn't be able to scale. Um, yeah, with- so, so right now we're comparing ourselves to, you know, like a regular RTGS, and we can easily do the same, you know, whatever... Max, you know, max out 100 transactions per second. And so Target in, in Europe does like, I think, 50 or 80 transactions per second. So we're well within the range of doing something like that. And I think Chaps in the UK is, is lower, like 30 transactions per second. So we can definitely do all of that stuff. We believe that it'll be relatively straightforward to scale in the future. We'll look at how the whole Ethereum world kind of evolves. But one obvious answer is you could shard it into, you know, into various uh, fragments and then um, have each of those uh, shards settle different parts of the transactions for you. So I think scaling isn't a problem for what we want now, and there is a path to much faster, you know, much greater scaling if we need it. Right, right. And then just a question here about, um, you know, refunds or chargebacks. How, like, how would that work in your system? Yeah, so I think that's really a retail thing. So we don't, right. we don't really have that problem. Like I said, I used to work at a big bank and, you know, we were known quite famously, you can probably look up on Google, for sending, you know, 50 billion euros to the wrong person. They just have to send it back, you know, and generally speaking, they do. So Right. right. <laughs> okay. Okay, maybe we can close with, you know, I'd love to get sort of you to paint a vision for us of what this can look like, say, in, you know, in five to ten years' time where, you know, all the major banks are using this. What, tell us a little bit of what that's going to look like. You can imagine a world where we have one of our systems operating in each, let's say, 50 jurisdictions. So all the banks are able to interoperate and do FX and security settlement as they want. So if you were a bank, and this audience obviously isn't full of bankers, but if you were a bank, you'd have the situation where, let's say you were Swiss, you could be securing all your funding in Switzerland, which is where you have an advantage over funding. You can go to the central bank and you have all of your assets in Swiss. If you want to do something in the US, you don't need to keep money in the US that's basically a wasting asset. And you, know, you have the credit problems of holding it with a correspondent bank, etc. You just FX in instantly into the US, and then you buy whatever shares that you wanted to buy um, straight away. You can see all of the banks kind of doing this on a real-time basis and really uh, speeding up, essentially, the velocity of money. 
Okay, well, it's a great place to leave it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ramo. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. Best of luck. Appreciate it. Thank you.